2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. The world doesn't think that the gospel can change your life, but we know that it can. And that's why we want you to hear these stories, stories of transformation, stories of freedom, people getting free from sin and healed from sin because of Jesus. This is Death to Life. My coping mechanism, my safe place was my brain. And what trauma had done to me was made my brain untrustworthy. I couldn't think. And the message of the Spirit to me was like, you don't have to understand. You don't have to explain. You don't need clarity on this. Just rest. Yo, welcome to the Death Alive podcast. My name is Richard Young. Today's guest, uh, I've been trying to have Cassie Rain on the podcast for years, literally. literally. Literal years. And just in early October, I was able to be with her at her church and to record this episode. And I think a tear actually came out of my eye at one point because she's uh, she has an amazing story and she's an amazing storyteller and she's one of my favorites. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the perfect season finale for us. So uh, this is Kessie Rain. Hear ye her. Buckle up, strap in. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. This is real talk, God is loving on me. Colorful and innocent, that's on me. Got me standing in the light, and it's on me. It's a new heart, it's a new beat. It's a new thing, it's a new seat. It's a new thing, it's a new dream. It's a new heart, it's a new beat. Ay, got me singing like. Oh, got me singing like. Got me singing like. So the first time I ran into Kessie Rain Bennett was on Spectrum Online like Magazine. Cable? Oh, oh, oh. Spectrum Online Magazine. And okay. it was a sermon about, I think it was about women's ordination. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I usually don't even go to that website, but I was like, oh. What's this? And I don't know how long ago it was. And I was listening to the sermon and I was like, 2015. I was like, this is an incredible sermon. 
And I, w- I was super blessed. And then I heard that you were moving to All Roads Lead, especially with the Death Life podcast. <laughs> the middle of everywhere. To uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And I remember meeting you because uh, all the pastoral staff at CVC are my favorites. And I met you. Michael introduced you to me. And I was, I was like, oh, that's crazy. You're here. And I don't know if it was the first or second time we were talking, but you thoughtfully broke down something about like food or something. And I was like, she's so thoughtful. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a blessing. And ever since then, I was just like, wow, what a, um, what a cool and just spirit filled person. I want to, I really want to be friends with her. Um, and then through the last few years, we have become friends. But uh, that's all this to say is I haven't known you for too long. What is it? Three, four years? Two, About three, four five years. years. About five years? Yeah, I got to College View Church <laughs> five years ago. A uh, little more than five years ago, 2017, in summer. Wow. Okay, so it's been a little longer. But to see um, your ministry and all of this, it's just been such a huge blessing. And... Um, my question is when it comes to your spiritual life or um, when it comes to, I don't know, where, where does the story start? And I think that's how I always started this because I don't know where to start. So I'm going to let you decide <laughs> where, where does the story start when it comes to who you were in relationship to who God is? I grew up in a home uh, without religion, really. And so, you know, my story starts off a little different than some people's. Um, I always had a longing for spiritual things. Mm -hmm. I I was a spiritual kid without knowing what that was. Didn't know the spirit, didn't know the Lord, didn't understand the Bible. There were some religious people around me and... I would kind of cling on to whatever religious thing was happening. Um, And that could be, you know, a kid in my daycare had a prayer necklace. And so I was like, I want a prayer necklace. So I got one and, you know, I had a little picture of the crucifix and a little prayer on the back. And I assumed the, that boy and his family were Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't have even understood that label at the time. I didn't really know what was being pictured on that, prayer necklace with this guy hanging and the prayer, but it was like, I wanted that. Um, you know, I went to like a VBS one week when I was a kid, I went to a a Christian camp for a week, um, and went to church with friends when I could. Um, so doing all that, trying to be religious, trying to find my spirit, um, but I didn't know really how to do it. I didn't have like real guides and mentors in my life. And so just to give you an illustration of Kessie Arane Bennett as a kid, um, I had been given a children's Bible, like mm-hmm. a precious moments kind of version. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wanted to read it because I was like, this is a religious book, you know? Okay. Let, you know, <laughs> I'm going to read this book. And so I, I pull up in the book and Bible's a big book. Mm-hmm. You know, I opened it up somewhere in like Chronicles. 
and I'm trying to read it. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a New King James. And I, I don't know if you remember this or if you use a New King James, but they italicize certain words. And they italicize the words that they have added in to smooth out the English from the original languages. So all the random words are italicized. But I didn't know that as a kid. So I was reading these words, and I thought you would italicize something for emphasis. So I'd be emphasizing the most random words in this narrative with names I didn't know how to pronounce. I had no context for what was going on. So I was like, okay, I need a new approach. (laughs) So I went all the way to the back, and in the back they had these special pages. And in the special pages, you know, there was like artwork around things. And so the first artwork um, page was something called the uh, Betite. Have you ever heard of these? Was that italicized so you didn't know how to say it right? Or I, I mean, how would you ever know how to say that word if you haven't heard it in church? I was like, betidus, betidus. This is a very Eddie Corneo ESL, what you're saying. Yeah, it was a struggle. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to read that one. And then I found one that seemed super promising and it had a title at the top. And the title at the top was The Lord's Prayer. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going straight to the top. Let's get the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And so I read it, and I and I this was my attempt to pray because I, and I wanted to pray. Uh, and so here are these magical words from this religious book, and so I'm going to do that. And so I I prayed as I had seen it on TV. I, I kneel beside my bed at night, and oh. I quote, say my prayers, and I say, "Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name," and I learn this prayer. And I'm saying it out loud. I thought that's how you're supposed to do it. And I'm saying the prayer, but I didn't know who my father was. Oh. I didn't understand this prayer, but I'm, I'm praying these prayers. And as I get older, you know, I'm still spiritual, still searching, um, reading books that I find at garage sales. You know, mm-hmm. one of the last books that I bought before I really met Jesus was on uh, uh, your chakras and your astral bodies and projection and this Ayurvedic philosophy and stuff, you know, like a, a, a totally different worldview. But I was just searching. But if you'd asked me, Kessie Rain, what are you searching for? I mm-hmm. would have said nothing, which was what I was finding. Nothing. But I would learn as a young teenager in the year of our Lord, 1,996, that I had a father in heaven and I would learn his name. So that happened the summer that I was going into the eighth grade. So you're going into the eighth grade. Did you, what kind of view did you have of yourself growing up? I ask people that question. Some hmm. people have a really good answer, like they they thought about it, and like other people are like, I didn't think about a view I had of my myself. A view I had of myself. Um, I think usually our view of ourself is heavily influenced or constructed by the feedback we're getting from others, especially Absolutely. as a really young yeah. person. So. I think the way other people saw me, the way I thought they saw me that told me who I was to myself, uh, I was smart. Uh-huh. I was aloof. That was a word that got used a lot. I was probably nice. 
That was maybe it. I was poor. Definitely that. Did you live upstairs just in your in your head? Where is that why the aloofness comes in? Because you're constantly living up there. Yeah, introverted thinking is a pretty dominant cognitive function in my brain. So yeah, and I was disconnected from my emotions, um, very intellectualizing of my experiences, and definitely more of a observe the situation, not trying to be sociable, not trying to be a public speaker, not trying to be in new social situations, like no, I'll hang back. And so talk to me about intellectualizing your emotions. What are the, what are the pros and cons or are I, I'm really ignorant. Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah. An emotion, the way I understand it is is basically a physical sensation we experience in our bodies coupled with a psychological explanation or interpretation of those sensations. And so an emotion is actually a physical phenomenon. As someone who was disconnected from her body and lived mostly upstairs in the brain part of the body, (laughs) um, I did not experience the emotion of anger, say, until I was in my late 20s. Hmm. Was I, were there things that offended me, bothered me, irked me and things on and on? Yes. But was I experiencing anger in my body? Probably. Did it ever connect with my brain? It took a long, long time for that. So the, if there's a pro to intellectualizing your emotions, it can lead to, uh, it can benefit you in terms of emotional control because mm-hmm. my emotional pendulum wasn't swinging very far from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. And intellectualizing my emotions would be really putting a lot of words and explanations and, and scientific uncovering around what I was experiencing rather than actually experiencing them. Hmm. So life is, turns out, more dramatic but more rich when you're actually inhabiting your emotional experience in a physical way. Um, and in a spiritual way, but yeah. So was your body then not leading the way? What you thought about what was going on was leading the way? So if we're thinking about Galatians 5.16, you know, walk by the spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Uh, most of the time people have a problem because they live out, outside in, their body wants something. And so they don't even get to their personality or their soul or even, even deeper what the spirit, their spirit or what the spirit of God is ministering to their spirit to what they should do. So if their body says, I want this, then they go for it. And then calamity ensues because it might not be the thing. Does that, did your body not lead the way? It was more one layer in your personality, maybe not the spirit, but you're kind of, intelligence? Yeah, I would say more things like things that would be less maybe body oriented. And and there is a pitfall I would learn later, which is that this is skip would skip way ahead to like recent Mm -hmm. (laughs) spiritual developments, but that I, I have the kind of personality that, that looks really religious kind of naturally. It sort of lends itself to more of a controlled 
sort of life. So I'm not the kind of person who's prone to just like getting wild and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not the, the, that younger prodigal son kind of type. Right. Like, no, like I'm going to count my pennies and like, I don't think spending on those activities is where I want to spend. You know? Yeah. Um, but the, it's a, it, it can lead to living small, trying to live on the least. So some people, um, it's more like, well, let's be satisfied with what God gives us and not what the world gives us. That's like the lesson that mm-hmm. God, you know, will grant to them. The lesson for me has been more, um, open your mouth and I will satisfy you with good things. As God says in Psalms, it's become more open, become wider and more expansive and experience life. That's where abundance is. So rather than living small, accept the invitation to live open because I will be taken care of. And that was really core to my personality really was an adaptation to a fear that I would not be taken care of. I was on my own. I was on my own resources. Yeah. And I don't want to, I think I do know one thing about your story that we're going to get to and that there was some anxiety and wrapped up with fear. So we don't step on that, but let's start, let's go back to eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you get introduced to, to Jesus? So I'd been literally had been to church, been to Bible studies and all that kind of thing. Um, with my friends, gone to like a youth group at a a Presbyterian church that was in my town where I lived there in Roseville, California, first pres. Um, Roseville, California? Roseville, California. I lived there for years. What part of the state? Middle? South? Yeah, it's in Sacramento area. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So I moved a lot as a kid and my parents separated when I was in kindergarten, Mm -hmm. maybe before that. I was really young, so young I can't remember exactly when it happened. Uh, but at least by the time I was in kindergarten. And then at the end of that year, my my mom moved to California. My dad was still in the Pacific Northwest. And so I would kind of go between them for summers and school years. And so the summer of 1996, I went up to visit my dad. And I was honestly, I was tired of visiting my dad. I was like a young teenager. I didn't want to leave my friends. And it just seemed like a hassle. My dad worked nights at the time. Mm. So I was like, nah. You know, yeah. also maybe the the clue <laughs> to my personality, I was not prioritizing relationships really either. So like, oh, I should prioritize spending time with my dad. Family is forever. It was not really in my mind. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to stay there all summer. So I basically made a plan with my mom. Like, I'm just going to go for two weeks. That kind of felt like I'm doing my daughterly duty and I'll just check that off my list and move on. And I got up there to visit my dad in Washington. He was living in Battleground, Washington, little town, never heard of it in my entire life. And he was, didn't have his own place. He was renting a room from a guy. And this guy was a single dad who had three kids, two daughters and a son about my age. And so when my sister and I came to visit my dad, this guy he was renting the room from was like, yeah, they can stay here. So we slept in their, in his daughter's bedrooms, um, for as long as we were going to stay there. One thing I learned when I got there was that, first of all, they said pop instead of soda. So I had to like get used to that. They're like, do you want pop, juice, water? And I was like... Battleground Washington is in the Midwest? I didn't know that. I know. And then I would learn later. (laughs) They were from Michigan. Okay. So that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, say what? And uh, and then he kind of had this rule that like, well, in my house, we wake up and we do family worship. 
Richard Young. It was at six in the morning. Oh, mercy. It was terrible. I, I needed the mercy of the Lord, and I did not at that moment have it. I complained so much. Like, oh, are you kidding me? It's so early. Meh. Every morning up, we are reading the Bible and singing some song I've never heard of and having prayer. And I was like, it's the summer. You work from home. It does not need to be at 6, 9 a.m. Perfectly fine. Anyway, I complained at a whole bunch. And then anyway, they also invited me to church. And I pretty much had this posture of if someone invites me to a religious thing, I'm saying yes. So I was like, yeah, sure. It was on Saturday, which I thought was a little bit weird. But okay, whatever. So I, Saturday. Saturday. I know. I was like, did you not get the memo yeah. about what day literally everyone else goes to church? But anyway, it was fine. So we, I go to Saturday church and they, they met on Friday nights. They had this teen group that met on Friday nights in homes for Bible study. Mm-hmm. And then they did church on Saturday, Bible study hour. And then like the congregational worship in the quote unquote sanctuary. And like, anyway, so I, I just started going to this and over the course, like two weeks passed, And I was like, well, I don't know, like two more weeks. So then I was there four weeks and then four more weeks. And then, and then it was like somewhere over the course of these weeks without lightning flashing from the sky or like illuminating me in this like sudden way, I was praying. I'd be like woken up in the middle of the night with this urge to pray. And I would like write down all these prayers and I'd be like out there trying to literally, (laughs) I had been like reading the Bible for like weeks. And I was like, let me explain to you what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter eight. <laughs> and I literally remember trying to give someone a Bible study in Romans eight when I'd been studying the Bible for like a minute. What was he saying in Romans chapter eight back then? Boy, I should go back. I, if, if I still have it in my notebook, cause I was like taking notes, life in the spirit and, um, trying to explain it to people, you know, this is the flesh, this is the spirit, you know, all this stuff. And, um, Anyway, it's just, it's comical to me looking back because you don't know what you don't know. And, but I. That's amazing because I think that kind of innocence is like the sweetness that kind of how we're supposed to live without knowledge of good and evil. Just, yeah. Wow. This is what life in the spirit is. This is what life in the spirit. Let me explain the Bible to you. And honestly, what, what captured me, there was a beautiful community there that really enveloped me. And put up with all my sarcasm and complaining, but also like the words of scripture, Richard, like I think sometimes that I fell in love with scripture and that led me to fall in love with the Lord. Why did you fall in love with scripture? So, you you know, when I was first reading it, I had no idea what it was talking about. I had no sense of the narrative or anything like that. And then when I was trying to engage with religious people throughout my childhood, Everything was so simplistic and it was so, so basic. So I I remember going to this youth group meeting and we played kickball for like 45 minutes and then we drank punch and ate donuts and real youth group stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then they finally settle us down and we play some icebreaker game inside the room. And then um, the leader and God bless her wherever she is for doing the Lord's work. But, you know, then then the leader would try to talk to us for like 15 or 20 minutes about something sort of spiritual. But when I came to this 
group of weirdos in Battleground, Washington that felt to me like the middle of nowhere. And they're going to church on this weird day of the week, but they're opening the Bible. And I, I've, no one had done that with me really hmm. to open the Bible. Baptists got close. They, they, if I'd stayed there longer, they probably would have opened the Bible with me a lot more, but, but like, Oh, reading the word and being like, this book is amazing. The, the way the thoughts are interconnected, like the poetry, the beauty of the language in this book, the way this connects to that, which connects to this, which connects to that. And it was like coming together. And I was getting for the first time in my life, what I would later start studying for a PhD and systematic theology. I was getting theology. I was getting the overarching story. I was getting the story of a God of love, a planet in rebellion, a uh, father searching for his children, a plan of salvation, a great controversy, the triumph of good over evil. God has a plan for this planet. And, and when he comes back, he sets all things right. And this whole thing. And now I can start understanding this book and I see the connections are just like fireworks going off. And I, I, I was hungry for this. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read. And so I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading on my own. I'm (laughs) out here trying to give Bible studies to these lifelong Seventh-day Adventists. (laughs) And I'm praying without, without a decision necessarily, but it's just happening in my heart. And then we get to the end of the summer and I have to go back home Hmm. because I have to start school. Like it's time, the time has come, but I really felt conflicted. I felt pulled in two directions. You know, I, wanted to go back home and I wanted more of this. Hmm. I wanted this community and this life. And so I was faced with a point of decision. What am I going to do? Go back home. I might lose my faith forever. Or what am I going to do? Moving with my dad. I've like, who's renting a room from some people. (laughs) Was your dad interested in any of this stuff? It didn't seem so. So he was just like, cool, you're hanging out with them and you're doing that? Yeah, my parents, I will say this, I I didn't grow up in a religious home, but my parents were not antagonistic toward religion. So when I was like, dad, this guy at daycare has a necklace, it looks like this. He went and got one for me, you Mm -hmm. know, and my mom was like, sure, go to Camp Redwood or whatever it was, you know. And so I went and did that, you know, so it was like, Sure, go ahead. You know, oh, they want to pick you up. Okay, you want to walk to church on Sunday at this hour, I guess. Go for it. Knock yourself out, kid. So what'd you do? I talked to one of the grown-ups, one of the adult adults, and I was I told her what I was feeling, and she was like, okay, I'm going to be praying for you. So like that next week, and I just, oh, I was like all in turmoil about it. And I had to say, to explain a big reason why I was in turmoil about it was you asked me, how did I view myself as a kid? And I viewed myself as smart, as, as aloof, as nice, but also poverty was a big part of my identity because I grew up without a lot Mm -hmm. and in all kinds of circumstances. And I won't describe all the kinds of experiences and types of living situations or lack thereof that Mm -hmm. I experienced. But my dreams were small, Richard. They were small. I only wanted to be middle class. I wanted to shop at Old Navy. I wanted to own more than one pair of shoes. I wanted to 
uh, eat it somewhere fancier than Denny's. You know, I wanted to have a backyard, wanted a yard to live in a house, wanted a garage. I don't know what you put in a garage, but I want one of those. Like I, I saw the people around me and I wanted to live like that. That's where that, that those were as ambitious as my dreams were. Back then I wanted to be a medical doctor. That was my career goal. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to be rich. Like, I hope I see Europe sometime while I'm alive. I just, I wanted to be middle-class and I wanted to live in a house. And my mom had just gotten remarried like weeks before I went to visit my dad that summer. And we had moved into her new husband's house. So he has this house in Citrus Heights and has a palm tree in the front yard. Now I can say now looking back as a middle-aged person, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that nice of a house, but to me, this was not government subsidized housing. Okay. Like this is not a garage. This is not a trailer park. This is not a garage in a trailer park. This is not someone else's living room that we don't even really live there. This is not the back of a car. This is a house. And all my friends are there and all that kind of stuff. So leaving my friends and whatever. That's why I didn't want to move to Washington was because I didn't want to give up being middle class. This is my chance. My big dreams. You know, grapefruit dreams. Old Navy. Old Navy. Some people got hoop dreams. I had grapefruit dreams. I wanted a trampoline. Okay. So I'd have to leave my mom, my sister. I had three stepbrothers and stepdad down there. The house, the dreams, the friends. So anyway, next Saturday, we're in church. And this is a small church, mm-hmm. medium-sized, I don't know. But but we didn't get the pastor every week. Mm-hmm. So we were part of a district. So we had a lot of guest preachers who came through. And the sermon this guy preached changed my life in that moment. Actually, I'm not going to give him that much credit. I have no idea who he was. <laughs> I have no idea what he said in the sermon. What changed my life was the scripture reading. And it was Mark 10, 29 through 31. Now, this is coming off the heels where where Jesus has read it. Oh, I, I got it. Oh, I got okay. it up here. <laughs> I got it up here. Jesus has just had the interaction with the with the rich young ruler who goes away sad because right. he has so much and right. he doesn't want to give it up for the Lord. And Jesus is like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples are floored. Oh. What? And Peter, being Peter, is like, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And then this is where the scripture reading picks up uh, in Mark 10. I tell you the truth, except this is old King James. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. That's how it still reads in my brain. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And probably the reason I have no idea what he said in a sermon was because when that scripture was read, it was God's promise to me. Mercy. He was talking to me. 
I was so afraid to leave all these things. And he gives me this promise. And this is what one of the things that's so beautiful about the Bible to me. Jesus spoke these words to Peter and his closest apprentices. Mm-hmm. And he spoke it to them and he spoke it for them. Mark picks up the story and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records and preserves it. And it follows us right down through the ages until some person reading it in some church, some Saturday in 1996, says these words out loud and the Holy Spirit picks them up and shoots them like arrows to my heart. Jesus spoke those words to Peter and to me. And I love that about the Bible. And I love that about how the Spirit uses those words. And so I knew I'm supposed to move to Washington. Hmm. You know, like if I had, you know, my fishing nets in one hand, I was reaching out for the hem of Jesus's garment with the other hand. And this was a clear call like, hey, leave your nets, follow Mm -hmm. me. So I was like, okay, I don't know how you're going to fulfill this promise. Like I literally have had a house for like five months and now you're going to give me a hundred. A hundred mothers, a hundred fathers, a hundred homes, a hundred whatever. Like, okay. In this life, it says, this is not talking about like somewhere beyond the blue. Hmm. I was like, okay. So I called my mom and told her, you know, I think I should probably get to know my dad a little bit better while I'm still young and a little afraid to speak religiously about it. Mm -hmm. But I moved to Washington. I kept studying the Bible. Um, I ended up being baptized about a year later and, uh, in 1997. So I was 14 and I'll tell you what's interesting was that first mother's day after I made that decision to follow Christ, to really be a disciple. I dove into that church community. They embraced me. I wrote a, a mother's day card to my mom. I have a good mom. Mm. I, have a, I, have a, I have a good mom. I wrote a Mother's Day card to her, and I wrote a Mother's Day card to a woman named Lori and a woman named Cindy and a woman named Audrey and a woman named Junie, who'd all mothered me that year. And Father's Day, same thing. I wrote a, wrote a card to my dad. My dad loves me. And I wrote a card also to Howard and to mm. Gary and to Charles and to Lynn because they had fathered me. Mm. I mean, these these people took me to... Randy took me to the department store to buy me clothes, what they called quote unquote Sabbath clothes, right? Church for church clothes. And uh, they were so kind. No one ever said anything. I realize now I had no clothes appropriate for the church activities, (laughs) (laughs) but they made sure I did taking me places, making sure I had clothes on my back, taking me to the hospital when I was sick with bronchitis, making sure they paid for my medications when we couldn't pay for them. I literally lived on the wrong side of the tracks in Battleground, Washington. <laughs> um, lived on top of a aerobic center. We didn't have our own like trash can. There was like no front door to the, it was like such a janky like, situation. They would come to that wrong side of the tracks and pick me up for Wednesday, Bi- Wednesday night Bible study and drop me back off. They'd take me to Friday night youth group. I'd spend the night at their house so often, Friday night, Saturday night, spend the whole weekend with them, Sabbath with them. And they put up with me and they mentored me and all my sass. And I had a lot of rough edges and I went through some teenage life stuff. Sure, sure. And they 
that church was God's answer. That church was God's promise. I had a hundred homes and a hundred mothers and a hundred fathers and brothers and sisters and grandparents. And that little church, I'll tell you just how well God answered that promise. When I was 18, I'd started college a little bit young. And so I had two years of college under my belt and I was starting year three. And the pastor and first elder of my church had a conversation with me and they were like, you know, what are you thinking of, of doing in life? And I wanted to go to college so badly. Again, my middle-class dreams, okay? That was like the thing I felt like I was meant to do. Mm. Like if I had any defining feature that people talked about all the time from the time I was like three years old or younger, she's so smart. Smart people go to college, I thought. This was my narrative. I wanted to go to college so badly, but I could not afford it. Mm. And, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. I have a lot of interest in cultural anthropology. I really love genetics. So maybe something in there, maybe genetics or something like that. That's what you're saying at 16? Yeah, this was 18 now because I'd had two years of college. So I... I had I had two years, so I can get my associates probably, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to community college, you know, down yeah. the street from my house, and uh, it's nice and cheap, and I've got scholarships, so it works out perfectly. Um, but to get like that four year yeah. situation, like I can't I can't afford it. Yeah. I mean, I've looked at in state tuition. I was good. I really wanted to go to the Evergreen State College, which is this weird, funky. Uh, alternative college in Olympia, um, go gooey ducks. That's their <laughs> mascot. It's a, it's a clam. Um, a gooey duck is a clam. Yeah. Washington specialty. Anyway. Um, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. My family, you know, I was like, could they help? You know, and I could get barely enough to cover living in the dormitory, hmm. like barely. I just, I can't do it. I don't know how, like, I don't see a path forward. And they said, have you ever thought of working for the church? Now, a couple things you need to know. Number one, this is not a progressive congregation. Mm -hmm. A drum is not tapped in the sanctuary. All right. No, sir. No, we've, we have the organ, we have the piano and on youth Sabbath, the classical guitar if you're crazy. If you're crazy. One one week a quarter. So this is not a progressive place. I did not know this would have been a progressive slash conservative debate question, whatever. Work for the church. Because literally, this is the other thing you need to know. I had no idea what that meant. Because I was like, what what what, what do you what do you mean? Work for the church. Yeah, work for the church. Like, what does that mean? I didn't really understand conferences, the way that our denomination is structured. I didn't understand, like, what does a pastor even do? Anyway, they explain it to me. And I was like, wait, you mean do ministry, which I'd already been doing, right? I'm teaching Sabbath school. I'm preaching. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on personal ministries committee and social committee. And I'm at every church event, you know, very on fire, right? Like, okay, let me get this straight. You mean do ministry, but you get paid for it. So you don't have to have another job. So you can do a lot of ministry, like full time. And they're like, yeah. And I, I, to this day, I can tell you the exact words that came through my brain, which were these. 
Who would not want that? Like, no, this is exactly what I want. Yes. Like, no, I've never thought of working for the church, but yes, that sounds awesome. They said, well, you know, it'd mean studying theology at a private school. You'd have to study for the ministry and all that. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. So I was like, oh, we have those? Like, what are those? What are their names? Let me write them down. So I like write down all these names and I start looking on on the um, little baby internet <laughs> that we the had World back Wide then Web. In, in the year 2000. Like Oakwood University, maybe I'll try. Yeah, I, I literally like listed them all, and I was like, mm, and I compared like what their majors were and this and that, and and I'd narrowed it down uh, because I was like, well, I can get a double major because I already have all these credits. So anyway, I narrowed it down and I applied to two of them, and then each of them sent me a letter like, yay, you you made it in, and that was very exciting for me. <laughs> <laughs> now I know some of us here have been recruiters, <laughs> and it's not me. <laughs> Um, uh, do you have cash? <laughs> <laughs> Which was the one thing I didn't have. <laughs> funny you should mention that. <laughs> Talk to Sally May. Yeah, funny you should mention that, Richard Young, because that was the one thing I did not have. Yeah. I was like, you know, again, seeing on TV people apply to college and they're excited to get in. And I was like, I never applied to college. Like, I didn't really have to apply to Clark College, like in Vancouver, Washington, uh-huh. like where I lived. So. It's like, oh, good. It's so exciting. I get this like letter from them and it's so nice. And I'm starting to get very like thrilled. And then, um, then they have like the financial aid letter and I was like, oh, okay. Is where's file 13? Like, this is not, this is not a reality. This is not a realistic situation. Let me correct myself. It is not fair for me to joke that way. There is kids that are trying really, really hard to get into school and they want to get the good grades. I'm just laughing at you because your grades are, you're, you're A++, you got a 4.9 GPA. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I got in. I got in. <laughs> I, I was like, well, I, you know, they asked like extracurriculars and I was like, I have the Presidential Service Award for 100 hours of community service last year. Like, oh. I hope this makes them let me in, you know? So sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they let me in and as a transfer student, they're like, we can give you $1,500 a year. For which school? As a, as a, the, this was actually Andrews and Southern at that time. $1,500 a year. As a transfer student. You come in as a freshman with your ACT scores and all that. They want they want four years. But they did not yeah. at that time really care about uh, uh, my transfer self. And so I was like, oh, I should have just taken the ACT. And I mean, I did take the ACT, but could I just pretend I don't have all these yeah, other credits? and then I can get $4,000 or something. I used to do this joke, and I'm sorry, I have to say this is the perfect time. My when uh, when Union came to my graduation, they would read all the lists, and they're like, uh, "Michael, you've got six thousand dollars scholarship." <sighs> Miriam Young's my twin sister, eight thousand dollars. <sighs> Richard Young, you owe us sixteen dollars. <laughs> like what? I didn't get anyway. Sorry. <laughs> he still hasn't paid the debt, I, I, yeah, ladies and like, gentlemen. That's my scholarship? <laughs> I, I got the Presidential Fitness Award. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you're looking at your situation financially and you're just like, I need a, a coin in the fish's mouth or something? What, what was the... That sounds really hopeful. No, I was like, oh, I'm not going to college. Oh. Like, I'm not finishing this thing. And... No one in my family has graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents, brothers, sisters, like nobody is. So 
I was just like, ah, you know, blue collar for me. Anyway, I don't know. But I had this dream and I was like, uh. So then I get a call months later. They were like, okay, we'll just, you know, apply and just I'm like, all right, well. Had you decided I am going to be a religion or theology major at this point? If I went to this yeah. Seventh-day Adventist religious school, yeah. Yeah. And if you were going to go to public school, you were going to study medicine or genetics or something. Yeah, okay. yeah. And uh, some some weird hippie anthropology at the Evergreen State College. Um, they don't give grades at that school, just to give you a sense of this. That this school. sounds like my kind of school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could never get in there. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I went to an alternative high school, so I was like, oh, let's just keep it weird. Um, anyway, so I get a call. I think it was in July and it was from the first elder. And he was like, pack your bags. You're going to Southern. Aye, aye. And I was like, hmm? I was like, I will pack my one bag, but <laughs> you remember that other conversation we had about money? And uh, my, my church was stepping up because they wanted to see me study for the ministry and they paid for me to go study for four years. Even though I had all those previous years of college, none of them involved Greek or Hebrew or preaching or any of the 88 credits that a theology major was at Southern at the time. Yeah. And so I, I literally needed four more years of school. And they paid for all four years of that school. Mercy. And again, not a huge, this, don't, don't think college view church. Don't think big church, thousands of people there. Don't think multi-million dollar budget. This is a church that isn't big enough to keep its pastor for weeks out of the month. You know, it's a, a small country church, Hawkinson Heights in Brush Prairie, Washington. And so they, they, they were my family and they stepped up in ways that my family could not. I have a, a former student of mine who uh, was a member of a congregation where probably one of the richest Adventists that is goes to that church. And he said, if anyone wants to go to Academy or Adventist college, uh, it's on me. I will pay for all four years of Academy and I will pay for all four years of college. My student, he went through the Academy and he went through union college. And one day I was like, bro, I need to tell you how much you have been blessed. You're starting out with no loans, bro. Do you know what that means? Mm -hmm. And he was like, uh, I, I think so. I'm like, I don't think you do. <laughs> you need to understand how much God loves you and how much da 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 da. And I'm hearing this and I'm just like, like I'm getting chills just thinking about this church, these people that that just loved you and, and man alive. Yeah, I want to tell you as part of the story about my friend Virginia. And when I first got to that church, um, it was it was Virginia and her husband. Then he passed away, and she was a widow on her own. And she had gone to the elder. His name was Joel Craw. The elder's name was Joel. And Joel Craw and his wife, Pat Craw, were two of the people that really changed the trajectory of my life in believing in me and working for this. And, and so Joel was heading up this committee and, and Virginia came to Joel and said, I'd really love to help. I don't have a lot that I can share, but when we moved on to this property, you know, my husband told me, you know, he has, there's a box of silver somewhere on this property. 
And this is, you know, a house on acreage. And so the story as I, as I've been told was, you know, there's some a prayer circle and got a few deacons out there with some metal detectors and they're have prayer arms around each other with their metal detectors. Lord lead us to this. They literally find a box of silver and use that money to pay for my education. Mercy. Yeah. Like literal buried treasure that this widow is offering to this teenage girl. And the box was worth a a substantial, a substantial amount. It didn't cover the full four years, but I mean, it was, it was a substantial gift. And a lot of it was people just generously giving small gifts regularly over time. And I, And I don't know how to explain that, like, my own biological family was not able to do this for me. Mm -hmm. So when, think back to that promise Jesus Mm -hmm. gave me as I'm sitting in that pew, and I don't know what it means to follow him. I don't know what it's going to cost. I don't know what I might gain out of it. I'm barely in prayer and Bible study, right? I'm a baby believer. And he says, I'm going to give you a hundred of anything you're giving up. He totally did that. I could not have gotten to college. It doesn't matter how smart I was or whatever. I could not have mustered the resources to go to college as a first-generation college student with not enough money and a lack of family support. I would not be a college graduate. I could, I, nope. Mercy. And so I went to Southern. I got a Bachelor of Science in Communication, a Bachelor of Arts in Theology, and I was the first person in my family my extended family to graduate with a four-year college degree. And that was 100% because of the goodness of Jesus. On that graduation Sunday, were you just, because my story is not like your story. Uh, on graduation Sunday, my dad had to be like, Richard, this is a big deal. Because I was like, because I always knew I was going to go to college. Right. There was no question if I was going to go to college and I was going to get a degree because everyone in my family is either a doctor or a dentist. And what was what was wrong is that I wasn't a doctor or a dentist. That was the, but I was like, but I, I'm going to, and so he had to be like, no, Richard, this is a big deal. And for you, you're on that Sunday, I'm imagining you're just like, this is, God loves me so much. This is wild. It was a beautiful day. And Joel and Pat Craw came out to be there for my graduation weekend and it was incredible. Yeah. Wow. Testimony of God's goodness in my life for sure. So, uh, you've seen how good he is as you're in college, you're learning the theology. Is that you're just eating that up? Is this just like, this is, this is what I was built for. Amazing. Loved it. I remember coming because again, I had three years in a public college. I'd never been to a private school. Well, small caveat. I went to Post Falls Christian Academy in Post Falls, Idaho, uh, for kindergarten. And then I got kicked out before the year was over. So I never finished kindergarten, uh, kindergarten dropout or whatever you call it when they say she doesn't need to come back. Um, why you were doing bad words with the, the, the watercolor? Like, I was doing bad words. I was doing bad words, which the story never really made sense to me because I was like, I feel, I, I feel like I was a pretty like people pleasing, obey the rules kind of a kid, and then, so that seems like out of character with my memory of myself. And then I was like thinking about it recently. It just occurred to me when I was telling the story to someone earlier this month. 
that was the year my parents were separating and I was two weeks with my dad and two weeks with my mom and going back and forth and they're both dating other people. And there's a lot of tumult in my life at the time. Uh, So I'm going to chalk it up to life tumult is why I was, I was calling people bad names for being dum-dums. When uh, Natalie's parents were getting divorced, I think she told uh, her fifth grade teacher that to go do something uh, that he, (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. but like she's, Going through this traumatic moment in her life. Yeah. So besides besides Post Falls Christian Academy, um, I'd never been to private school, you know, up through college. And so I show up to Southern and my very first class, my very first day was Greek one with Ganun Diop. And I was, and they, he opened with prayer and I was like, oh my word, I love it here. <laughs> <laughs> this is what they do. <laughs> this is what you can pray just like out loud. Okay. Yes. Let us pray. <laughs> and I was real hyped on that. So. And there's a bunch of other students who are like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, guys, we just prayed. <laughs> I know. Yeah. A hundred percent. And thus explains my whole undergrad and seminary experience. People are like, why do we have to be here? And I'm like, shut your mouth. This is amazing. <laughs> Yeah. People have sacrificed for us to be here. <laughs> That's exactly right. This is a beautiful institution. We're so we are so fortunate. Yeah. So uh, you get out of college. What's the plan? Do you want to tell us that you met Mr. Bennett? Or? I met Mr. Bennett in college. By the time I graduated, I was already Mrs. Bennett. Already, Mrs. as a Bennett. matter of fact. Yeah. So I graduated college ten years after I first met those fine people at Hawkinson Heights Adventist Church. Um, I was Mrs. Bennett by 2005. And um, so that was beautiful. Yeah, it's a gift. And in your mind, um, yeah, who was God at this point? Oh, man, God was goodness itself, the principle of goodness. Uh, Every decision and judgment that he made, just and true are thy ways, O Lord. Um, yeah, it was the sum, the pinnacle of every ideal and missional. I mean, I was, yeah, I, I was fully caught up in, in, you know, God is personal. God is God's word in the Bible is powerful. Um, we have a remnant message. Let's get out there and gotta tell change him. the world. We gotta tell him. And his view of you. Hmm. More complex, to be sure. You know, part part of my story through this time was going through an anxiety disorder, and that really wreaked havoc on my spirituality. And, and this, let this, let this be a lesson to us all <laughs> here. Here's how it went. And the story is really complex. It would be like a whole conversation unto itself. Um, and I want to acknowledge that, that anxiety disorders come in all kinds of flavors and stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally was experiencing panic attacks and scrupulosity, which is like a religious kind of OCD trying to keep my anxiety at bay. And so it looks different. When did, for different it, when people. did it start? What was the trigger to it starting? Yeah. So I was about 16 when it started. And so 
as much as I love Jesus and loved the Lord, um, I, I, I felt when I was first coming to faith that like I needed to have like a more exciting story. It's like, my story doesn't feel very exciting. I know. <laughs> I'm like, this story is wild. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. But I, I had the feeling of like, ah, oh, it's too tame. Shouldn't I be like a gang member, you know, converted from, from the streets and, um, <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> and, and I wasn't, you know, so, so I had like, you know, taken, taken the truth of my story and exaggerated that for other people. And it came to me this like conviction that I needed to tell the truth. And I like, number one, did not want to do that. Number two, did not know how, how to do that. How were you exaggerating where you're like, I was in the Crips, 29th <laughs> Street Crips? It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. I don't even know if I could remember it all now. Um, yeah, but just like, I would say taking the, some of the truth of my story and embellishing it is uh-huh. what I would say. And, but it was not truthful and that's what the conviction Embellishing was. like brokenness so that... Yeah, I guess it, so it seemed more dramatic or like impressive or something. I don't know. Because people were like, you should tell your story. I was like, well, I don't have a story to tell. Um, that's what happens when, and this is a broad brush that I'm going to paint this, like when you feel like your life is boring, that's when people start starting drama. Like, Yeah. They're like, oh, this is like, I got to be, and it, the whole point is that you want to be important. Yeah. Where's that main character energy? Yeah, no. And uh, yeah, wanting to be important. So I had this conviction, like, I need to go, like, make amends for this by, like, telling truth to people. And that was, like, very intimidating to me. And I was avoiding that. And I was feeling guilty about it. And then um, and then I was like, okay, I have, I need to do that. And so I went and was, like, trying to, like, correct the record to people. Sometimes that meant I was, like, writing letters to people I hadn't seen in a while. And, like, if I saw someone. And anyway, having conversations with people. And it was very humbling. But it was good. Always telling the truth and making amends is for the best. Sure. So it was good. But I still had a feeling of guilt. I still felt guilty. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what more do I need to do? Like, was I not was there someone else I should have been like emailing about this? Like what I need to do. And there was a part, part in the story where, you know, I got, I got a little, I got a little runaway and was, had a, I would say a short lived time of being a little, a little too wild and in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was really painful to me. Mm -hmm. Like it like wounded my conscience and wounded my relationships too, not terminally, but it was very wounding to like, God forgives, but the body remembers, One hundred, <laughs> you know, the soul remembers. And so, um, that was, I was just feeling guilty, like, and I couldn't seem to get rid of this guilt no matter mm-hmm. what I did. And I would like pray and ask for forgiveness. And I was like, but God forgives me because that's what his word says, but I still felt guilty and around this time, I started to feel what well, I would later, much, much later, come to identify as anxiety. I was feeling anxious. This turned out to be related to other things too, but like not psychological things, but physical things like blood glucose problems that I was having that I didn't realize I was having. And this all manifested in, in the sense that my sense of guilt began to complicate 
how God saw me. And I began to have questions about my acceptability to God. But here was here are some things that got me through this. And here's where the gift of the church and the gift of the word really met me and ministered to me there, where God used this as an anchor of grace because I had been given the gift of knowing that the Bible is God's true word. So when I read in John 6, 37, I was going to the Bible like, God, what do I need to do to be forgiven and be right with you and all this? And I thought I was doing everything, but I still felt guilty. And this this verse right here, the one who comes to me, I will for, I will, again, I have the old version in my mind, in no wise cast Cast out. I will not cast them out for any reason. The one who comes to me, I will not cast them out for any reason. And so I was like, as best as I know anything, I know I'm coming to you. So I know you got to accept me. Mm. I know that. I know that for sure, because this is what you say. Like, I'm holding it up to you, Jesus. John 6, 37. These are your words, words in red. This is what you said. I'm coming to you. You're not casting me out. And I'm holding on to that. But my physical experience of anxiety kept coming up and I started trying to be as righteous as possible because I was trying to protect my conscience. I was trying to guard myself against guilt. I was trying to say, you know, nothing between my soul and the savior. And so I will do anything to keep my conscience clean because I thought my conscience was the root of my anxiety disorder. And I became scrupulous. So I don't know if that word is familiar to you or to other people who might be listening, but, but in one sense of the meaning of this word is someone who is obsessed with doing the right thing. Obsessed with being as upright as possible for the purposes of managing their emotions. My uh, a friend of ours, Diego, said his definition for legalism was, uh, an, uh, what is it? You're constantly wondering about your standing with God, a a constant, Mm -hmm. he says, legalism is a constant, uh, I don't don't know the word right now, but reckoning with your standing with God. Would you say that the scrupulousness led to complete like legalism? Like a hundred percent. And actually I think a lot of what we interpret as legalism, a lot of it comes from bad theology. I want to acknowledge that. Like there are people out there who are like, just straight up teaching bad theology that is legalistic. I was not being taught legalistic theology. I I had been taught good theology Uh about who God was and what the Bible actually said about salvation and grace and goodness and, and all of this stuff. But my heart, my body, my mind could not receive that. And I made myself a legalist because I was afraid of fear and that's what anxiety disorder is, afraid I, of fear. I hear you saying that you made yourself this thing, mm-hmm. but that's not giving any credit to the enemy. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very. I was exploited by the enemy. But I just want to say that it wasn't because people around me, the people surrounding me were legalists. And so I was like, oh, okay. oh this is the pathway. No, it was, I wanted to do the right thing because I was afraid of a, a mark on my conscience. Mm-hmm that led me to be afraid of my standing with God. What What's my situation here? And so for me, it specifically turned into diet legalism. Oh no. And my relationship with food became messed up in that one weirdly specific 
way that a lot of our Adventist people can get messed up. And I was like, oh, you know, someone would say, and not like this is like written in some authoritative book, but it was like, you're not supposed to eat whatever yeah. fruits and vegetables in the same meal. Oh, don't can't have don't ice drink. water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't drink, don't drink with your meals. And so I was rigorous. I mean, no, no vinegar, no black pepper. Is this while you're in college or before even getting to college? I was 16, 17. Yeah. So I was in college at this point, but at home right. living still, but, um, it's interesting that, the, that, sorry, like Diego, who said the preoccupation of your standing with God is legalism. I think he understood that because he, and he would tell us this, he probably gave himself Crohn's disease by his same thing yeah. with the diet. The yeah. yes. obsessive scrupulosity. And I, I want to say, I think scrupulosity as religious OCD is super undiagnosed in a lot of religious people. Mercy. And there's, yes, there is a, there is a theology problem and it's really tied up also with an emotional health, psychological health problem, um, which is OCD. And, and the root is you're trying, like if we're talking about obsessive compulsive, it's like the lack of control in other areas tries, you try to get control in this area. It and can so be, you're like controlling everything that comes into your mouth to a degree that is unhealthy. Yeah. It's, it's so you can think of it as, um, and, and again, it looks different for different people, but where you will, you could have intrusive thoughts, mm. thoughts that aren't your own that you can't control that are unwelcome to you, but start to, to define you to yourself and dominate your thinking, um, where you have compulsions that try to, so the obsessive part can be those thoughts, the compulsions. How do I control mm -hmm. these thoughts? How do I keep myself from being dirty or how do I keep myself from hurting someone? Or how do I keep myself from, you know, those kinds of things. And so, yeah. And so, um, for me, the way that looked was I was going to control literally every part of my physical health. I was going to eliminate all the things that could be bad for me. Mm -hmm. So I am not going to eat this or this or this or this or this or this or this. And I'm not going to eat these in combination. And I'm going to give at least this much time between meals and I'm not snacking and I have to drink this much water in a day. And I'm going to stop 30 minutes before my meal. And then after every meal, I'm going to make sure I go on a walk after every single meal. And then I'm going to drink water, but I can't start drinking water till an hour after I've eaten because that can interfere with digestion. And my body is the temple of God. My body is the temple of God and it's worth taking care oh of, goodness. but this was not taking care of it, right? This was not even enjoying it. This w was, was not your body healthy? it. Like your mind is going crazy, but was your body healthy? Sort of. It, I didn't realize that I need to be paying more attention to like, Hey, you need glucose. <laughs> You're really sensitive to insulin and you keep having blood sugar crashes. That's why you're passing out. You need food, you know? Like you would stand up and get immediately dizzy and have to like hold onto the wall because you're like, or yeah. you would literally be passing out. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I have passed out because of low blood sugar several times. Oh, mercy. Not necessarily because I was eating this way at this time. That's just a reality yeah. of my life. So, um, you're yeah, like a Victorian I, age, like someone says a bad word. And you're like, ah! <laughs> no, yeah, no, like I haven't eaten enough time or I've only eaten 
carbs for the last X number of hours. I haven't had like protein and complexity in this. Uh And so my blood sugar spiked and then it dropped and I'm here at the bottom and I am trying to stand up and instead I fall down or I lose my vision Uh, or things like that. So anyway, so that was going on, but which also low blood sugar, by the way, can give you almost exactly the same set of symptoms that you would feel if you were really anxious Hmm. Learned that later. Anyway, <laughs> this story is getting long, but the point of it is that I was trying to control my conscience, trying to keep it pure before God, trying to control my anxiety by means of being a diet legalist. And I remember being, oh man, I remember being at a pizza place and I was like, oh, what do they have here that's vegan? You know, and I'm like trying to find something. I don't know how many people. Only God knows how many people God has spoken this particular message to. But in that moment, the word of the Lord comes to me. This is the spirit talking to me. And he says, you need to eat cheese. (laughs) It's like, never, Lord, an unclean thing shall not cross my lips. And I know for some people, it's just even wild that like cheese would be a religious issue. But it was for me. It was. You know, I was like, maybe I should go raw, like only dehydrate my foods, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a dehydrator, so it wasn't going to work out. <laughs> I'll just start juicing. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just live on a, well, I'm not going to eat locusts. Is honey vegan? Oh, it's not. Oh, mercy. Oh, no. Um, Did you grass. get the cheese? Yeah. So I ordered cheese pizza and I remember feeling nervous. I had like, I had like anticipatory anxiety, like, Oh no, I'm probably going to feel terrible after this. And like, how am I going to cope with how I'm going to feel after this? Did you really believe that God was disappointed in you if you ate the cheese? Yeah. Why was he disappointed? Because your body Because he gave me the light and I wasn't living up to it. Because he'd shown me how that wasn't the ideal diet and I needed to step up higher. This is the season finale of the Death of Life podcast. We're going to take uh, a few weeks, maybe a month, uh, and take a little break. And then we'll start uh, posting these again uh, sometime in the new year, probably pretty soon in the new year. Uh, So it's going to be a little break between um, episodes of the Death of Life podcast. Uh, That's the bad news. The good news is if you have just recently started listening to the Death to Life podcast and you've been overwhelmed by the amount of crazy episodes and crazy stories that there are, you can go back to season one and start from the beginning. If you uh, listen to Wayne and Michelle's episodes, their three episodes that they had, and you want to hear their son Tyler in the first one, I, I mean, I really think... I really think you ought to go back and listen to the first season. Uh, it was rough, uh, primitive, not edited, not edited well, because it was your boy who was editing it. But man, there's some amazing stories. Uh, my favorite episode, episode number two, Morgan. Uh, you should just go back and. If you've heard them all, uh, you should take this time to tell your friend. Tell a friend, tell a buddy. Hey, 
Have you tr- have you heard the Death to Life podcast? Oh, you haven't. What, well, what is you doing, baby? What is you doing? You need to listen to these episodes. Uh, each uh, season one, we start with Tyler. Didn't know what we were gonna do. Season two, we start with Floor. Didn't know where it was gonna go. And I imagine that's what it's gonna be like for season three. We're just gonna start collecting these stories, and uh, we're just gonna go from there. If you want to partner with us to produce season three, you can donate to the Death to Life podcast. You can do that at lovereality.org. Um, and you can uh, be a part of this story, and it would just be a huge blessing to us. So God, like you said, was all these wonderful things. He is goodness itself. Yeah. But his justice was over his mercy in this, in your mind in this area. No, in my mind, God's mercy was vast, but his justice was just. And I'll tell you, as it relates to the legalism, God renewed my soul. First of all, he made me eat cheese and I didn't feel sick at all. I felt fine. And which was great. And I didn't feel anxious about it either, which was a miracle. I didn't realize exactly what a miracle that was at the time, but I didn't have a panic attack after that. I was like, oh, this is fine. God brought someone, basically brought a message of justification by faith and renewed that in my little church. And I was like, on cloud 11, mm. I passed by cloud nine. See ya. Like two stories, like get out of here. I was just filled with joy, the joy of the Holy Ghost, justified by faith, just saved by grace. Hallelujah, what a savior. I mean, my heart was just filled with song and it totally renewed my life. I was still battling panic disorder though. And that was confusing. Well, then why do I feel this way? Because my internal sense, isn't that where I know how, isn't that where God communicates with me? So if my internal sense is freaking out and feels like God is not happy with you, because that was just my interpretation. Hey, I'm a religious person, right? So I'm a spiritual person. Other people have that feeling. They might feel like it might be hypochondrian. It might be like, oh no, I'm probably having a heart attack. Or it might be, oh, my grandson is going to turn into a felon if he doesn't stop biting people in preschool. And they start like having these catastrophic thoughts or whatever. People's thoughts go wherever they go. It goes to the thing that's most important to them. And the thing that was most important to Kessie Rain was spirituality because it's like, listen, my body dies. Like everything I own goes up in a a flaming fire. I have the Lord. I have eternity. Like you can't touch this. But if I don't have the Lord and this is where I, I like, so this is where my thoughts go. This is how I was exploited by the enemy because like touch my body, like, mm. My, my relationships, my possessions, my whatever. If I have the Lord, uh-huh. then I'm fine. But when the enemy would come and touch on my physical body and touch on my, and my emotions to, to bring in the idea that I'm not safe with Jesus, uh. I, maybe I don't have the Lord. Well, that's where for me all of life hinges. And so that was troubling to me. So I was coping with it and I would just go in seasons of prayer. But it got to the point where I would, I really felt this was the feeling, that physical sensation with that mental interpretation. The feeling was, 
I am lost. Uh. I'm not going to be with God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, and I'm not going to make it into eternity with him. I'm going to be outside the New Jerusalem, like Revelation 20, eating me up. The beautiful thing that emerged from that, and I don't, I don't wish the experience on anyone, but I do want to testify that how God refined and deepened and matured me in ways that during that period that I don't know how he would have done otherwise. Mm. So while I'm having that feeling, I remember praying in my dorm room I, and I was having a terrible time sleeping. I was starting to flunk out of college because I couldn't sleep at night. Every time I would close my eyes, I'd be terrified and I'd wake up in a start. And it's guilt. Yeah. I, and I felt like, what, what am I doing? It doesn't make sense. This is what the word says. I'm forgiven. He's faithful and just to cleanse us. Like, what is the problem? You know, I don't know. This Something just kept plaguing me and, I had this feeling, oh, you know, I'm lost. I just know I had this like, again, an intrusive thought of myself on the outside of the New Jerusalem. And in this moment, and I just believe this is a gift that I've been able to take with me in all the years since. I remember praying to God in the silence of my soul and saying, God if I am lost, if you in your justice for reasons I do or don't understand can't take me into eternity, I am going to serve you with my whole life anyway. I'm going to serve you with my whole life anyway. I'm going to love you because I know that you are good. So I trusted in that goodness. But like, if for whatever reason, God was, God couldn't bring me, I still had this deep trust that like, somehow it would have been for the good and that I wasn't going to spend my life doing anything else but serving him. It would take years before, from that time, another couple years before I even knew that I had panic disorder, before I could identify that the sudden onset of fear that I would experience, that that's called a panic attack. When it feels like you're being chased by someone, like your heart's beating, you know, and you're mouth is kind of dry and your palms are sweaty and you know, like, or you see a kid like hanging from a roller coaster and you're like, how are we going to save this kid? Like this, like emergency feeling, but I would have that emergency feeling out of nowhere. I'd just be like living life. And then like (gasps) emergency feeling, like I'm not actually dying. No one is chasing. Like I'm literally in a room talking with my friends. I don't understand what's going on. I'm in class. I'm trying to go to bed. It would be years before I understood what a panic attack was and that I had panic disorder. And honestly, learning that was such a huge help because it started to unspiritualize it for me. Hmm. It started to put some distance and say, hey, this might not be communication from God's spirit to your spirit. Uh. This might be a mental health 
problem. This might be a physiological cognitive problem. And that was such a relief. The enemy still continued to like harass me relentlessly through this and changed his approach and got real wily and all that. But there would come a day in which, oh man, again, the mercies of the Lord, in which God did set me free from from panic attacks. And I will always be grateful for that. October 10th, 2007. What happened? So once I had, oh man. (laughs) So the first lie was. 15 year anniversary, just a few, few weeks ago. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it was here in Oregon. So now I'm a pastor in Happy Valley, Oregon. And 15 years ago, I was working here in Oregon in ministry and I lived in Portland at the time. And uh, in my bathtub on Northeast 21st Avenue. And uh, I had been plagued by what would be worse than God not accepting you. Well, that feels pretty bad. But if you've already determined that God is good no matter what, and that if he exists, there's still justice and goodness and beauty in the world, what could be the only other thing that the enemy could use to just ruin your life and your existence. What could God, what, what, what could the enemy possibly take away from you if you have settled in your mind that God is and God is good? Well, it would be that God isn't. Yeah. And this began to be the locus of my panic, that God wasn't really there, that the universe is cold and empty and meaningless, that I'm just a, a chaos unfolding, you know, that there's no meaning to any of this just living on right on the existential cliff. <laughs> and like for a while, Richard, I couldn't look at the stars. They, they made me feel anxious. The moon somehow seemed closer, but like to contemplate the vast distances of space and cosmology, just, I couldn't handle it. I could not handle it. And so here I am working in ministry battling every single day an anxiety that maybe God doesn't exist. Interesting thing about this though, um, every time, why would that bother me if God doesn't exist? I was terrified of losing my faith. I was terrified of losing my faith. It was like, this is the core of my life. This is the core of my being. I cannot not have this. I was so afraid of becoming like accidentally falling into atheism But I was like, it's just, I I see now, like with such compassion, I look back on my younger self experiencing those things. And I, and I want to like hug her and just be like, your fear of unbelief is a really good sign that you're not an unbeliever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you're good. It's the proof that you're a believer. Yeah. Your heart is for the Lord. Like, I just, oh, that woman suffered so much, so, so, so much under that burden. And I remember preaching a camp meeting that year and being literally physically sick with anxiety. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was throwing up from being anxious, not about speaking. About whether God was, about you were losing your faith. If I was losing my faith, that I was going to stand up there and preach a series about the Lord as an unbeliever. And I just, I know you know this, 
But this is all from the enemy of your soul. That's like when right. you were saying he was getting wily, the one of the the things he does is he makes you believe that his thoughts are what it's coming from you. Yes. You're like, oh, this is what yes. I think. I'm losing my faith. Meanwhile, it's his minions putting this thought in and yes. saying, what if this, what if this, yes. what if this? And you you take that personally and like that you thought, what is this? What is this? Yes. What is this? One of the things that's on my heart that, that I, I, I have a heart for the conscientious person. I have a heart for the person with a sensitive conscience because that was me. I had a sensitive conscience. I wanted to do what was right. And because my heart and my, my, my conscience was so sensitive, I was vulnerable to certain lies of the enemies that other people are not. The bolder, brasher, wilder people are not sensitive in the same way. So when the, when the preacher says to them, you got to get your life right, you got to examine your life. Okay. Some people need to hear that. They need a wake up call. Mm-hmm. I, I needed a lullaby. I needed like a hug, you know, I needed like a hot lavender pack of like uh, a heating pad, like a, a balm. So I, you I have weren't a, trying to sin and get away with it. You thought everything that was coming into your mind was sin. Yeah. And I was so, I, I was so conscientious. So I have such a, such a heart for the conscientious ones. And whenever I find myself in a relationship with someone who's conscientious, I just like want to communicate so clearly to them that like God's grace is bigger than your conscience, that you don't have to trust and own every thought and experience that you have, that there is a, that this is prison, but the spirit brings liberty and like to be free, to walk in liberty. Like if I could have understood at that time exactly what you're saying, oh, we all have thoughts. You ever wonder like, what if, what if the earth really is on the back of a turtle? Like that one guy in ancient world said, like you read a story about it. You're like, that guy thought that. And you're like, what would that be like? And you just have this random thought. Are you now seriously doubting what the Bible says about what the, how the world was made? And are you really like, you know what? Maybe the earth isn't round. Maybe it's not a globe. Maybe I had this all wrong. You're not seriously doubting that. You're just, it's just a thought that's coming in your brain and then it leaves your brain. Right. It's like, Oh yeah, probably not though. Like just if we could clarify for all the souls who are afraid of their own quote unquote doubts, I just want to say for the conscientious ones out there, I'm going to just venture. And I don't know about you bold, bold, brashy people. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but for those conscientious people, I'm going to go ahead and venture and say 90% of the quote unquote doubts you have, you don't have. And they're not doubts. They're like ideas. But if you have a sensitive soul or you have kind of an obsessive bent, those will lodge in your brain and you become afraid. Like it's like people who become afraid that they're going to stab their girlfriend like they just have this like random intrusive thought where they like are stabbing their girlfriend with the kitchen knife. Like, oh man, I'm holding this knife. Like I could stab someone with this right now. And they're like, oh my goodness. Like I don't want to stab her. And they become afraid that they are like actually a murderer. There's this idea that when you're driving down the highway, that if you think, oh, if I just turn this car into this other lane right now, then I could, you know, my life would be over. And for then you to think, oh, I mean, I don't know anyone 
who hasn't had some a, a similar thought, thought like, right, yeah. oh, if I just do a hard left right now into this semi, that's not from you. Mm-hmm. That thought is not coming from you. You are not suicidal. If you are suicidal, then I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to someone who's just living life and a, and a rando thought comes mm-hmm. in. And that's why it's so powerful to just be able to dismiss those thoughts. But yes. if you don't know that you can dismiss them, mm-hmm. if you think that's me mm-hmm. and that's the trick. I think there's power in the message for a lot of these conscientious folks like me, we can become really hung up on kind of a purity model and a, a purity model of, of self and salvation. And this is one of the reasons I believe God has written and preserved the book of Hebrews for us, hmm. which is all about the purification. Mm-hmm. And one clear, clear message you can get from Hebrews is that Jesus took care of the purity part. Hmm. You're pure because he's pure. He, he made this happen. And all the details in Hebrews chapter one through 13 um, it, I mean, literally the book opens with this, like he made purifications for sin and then he took a seat. When, when okay, a, an aspect of some people's fight with obsessive compulsive disorder is this obsession with cleanliness. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a sweet, beautiful lady who has a hard time washing her kids and she loves her kids, mm-hmm. but she's wrestling with this, this obsession with cleanliness and her kids are quote unquote dirty. Yeah. But like you're saying those thoughts, and and this is why mental health is not separate from truth. And it's not, it's not like, Oh, we'll go to to church for, for our Jesus fix. And then we'll go to our therapist, YouTube or Google for my mental health or yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So dangerous. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the role that, that, therapy and professional resources have played in my life. But I don't, I literally don't know how I would have survived without God's word. Like I would memorize sections of scripture during this time. I'm telling you about where I was like, God, God may not even exist. The universe is empty. Um, I couldn't pray. I, anytime I would pray, I would feel anxious. I could like barely like cast a prayer up, especially when I was experiencing a panic attack, praying made it worse. So the like, trite, you know, cheesy, you know, like just, just pray it out. Like, absolutely not. I could not, it was paralyzing. It it intensified my fear. I, it made me feel like I was dying. That that's not a real good prayer environment. So I would, I would memorize when I wasn't having an anxiety disorder, I would memorize portions of scripture Mm -hmm. like Psalm 16 Keep me safe, O God, for you are my refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, dot, 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 dot. So that when that came on me, I wanted to keep my connection with God and I could take God's own words back to him. Because hmm. I couldn't pray, but I could take those words. He will keep thee in perfect peace. Whose mind has stayed on thee. Because he trusted in thee. Yes. So then you're in this bathtub. What does he say to you? So I'm reading. I've been reading through Mark really slowly. The second time the book of Mark changed my hmm. life. I've been reading through Mark really slowly. Shout out to Mark, by the Shout way. Shout out to Mark. Thank you. Um, and I'd been doing this whole intercessory prayer thing because I was like, God, I really, really need you to like show yourself as active. Like, like I'm desperate. Like, please 
show up as I'm praying. Like I'm praying for other people's salvation and like that they would know you and know the truth. And I feel like you have to answer those prayers. So I'm praying them. So I was praying for people in my life and God was answering these prayers in kind of amazing ways. Mm -hmm. Was I still battling anxiety? Yes. Because as it turns to find out, my anxiety wasn't based on reality. (laughs) So, so no amount of like reality, um, from my senses was going to solve that problem. Um, so I'm in this bathtub and I'm, and I'm reading the story of, um, the story of Jairus. And remember he has this young daughter, Mm -hmm. he finds Jesus. He's like, you know, Lord, come, uh, come heal my daughter. She's on the verge of death. And then on the way he he gets interrupted because this woman touched the hem of his garment Mm -hmm. and she's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years and she gets healed. And it's this whole thing. And what I noticed in the story was that there's this series of stories where, where Jesus is, um, being like his authority is being demonstrated. So first Jesus calms the storm mm-hmm. and like Jesus is Lord over the natural world. And then Jesus heals the, the, the demon possessed man in the garrisons. And so Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. And then, and then this woman has this hemorrhage for 12 years and Jesus is Lord over disease. And then Jairus's daughter dies in the meantime. And Jesus nevertheless goes over there and is like, oh, you know, all this hullabaloo for nothing. Mm -hmm. And he raises her from the dead. Jesus is Lord over death. Hmm. Okay. And I'm just seeing this progression. So it's been on my mind and I've been praying about that for other people claiming this promise. And as I'm reading the story again for, I don't even know what number of times. This conviction falls on me. an act of grace from the Holy Spirit, a grace falls on me and I pray, I feel compelled to just say to Jesus, I don't know if you want to heal me, but I know that you could. I'd never asked God to heal me from my panic disorder. And one of the reasons for that was I was afraid that I would ask and he would say no. That's why we don't ask. I wouldn't be healed. And then then where would my faith be? Especially since that's the whole crux of my anxiety at this point, right? Like Then you would have proven it. Yeah, right? And then I'm like, oh, then I'm for sure just going to be lost to unbelief and like I'm going to be lost to atheism and I'm going to become a skeptic and all this. And I didn't want that. I wanted faith. I wanted the Lord. And so I never asked to be healed. But in this moment, I was compelled, like, like I couldn't, it was just like, Lord, I don't know if you want to, but I know that you could, if you wanted to, I know that you could. And I'm about to go in, in this context, like the reason I'm in this bathtub at this late hour is I'm going to about to go pick up my sister from the airport and we're going to go to this place together. Every time we go to this place, I've been to many, many, many times. It gives me anxiety. It's very dark mm-hmm. music, environment, drug use, topics of conversation. It's it's a dark place. Sure. And I was like, I need a little Jesus before I go have a panic attack for real, for real. And for the ne- every night for the next five nights that I have to go to this thing. And so that's why I'm in this tub. And so I'm just like, Lord, I don't know if you want to heal me, but I know that you could. 
and this like tear falls in this Bible that I'm holding here. And my eyes fall on this. Words in red, don't be afraid, just believe. Mark 5.36, Jesus is speaking to Jairus. Jairus has already heard that his daughter's dead. Don't even bother the teacher. She's already dead. Move on. And Jesus's words leap up to me from this page. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And I I have no words to this, but just like a heart-rending cry of desire in my heart. And the next words, my eyes fall on this page. Words I had preached on. But they never had the power they had until that night. He said to her, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I didn't experience electricity. No blinding light. No external voice. I got up, I got dressed, I picked up my sister, we went to the place, we did the thing. And I came home and I was like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't have a panic attack while I was there. Next night, same thing. And I come back home late and I'm like... I guess I didn't even need to pray about it because I didn't have the panic attack. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And then this happens. And again, speaking about being conscientious, I at this time had a journal where I recorded how much water I drank, when I went to the bathroom, Mm. um, everything that I thought contributed to my anxiety. And I had a little box in the upper right corner where I recorded on a a number, on a scale of one to 10, how high my anxiety peaked in any given day. Mercy. So I was keeping track. I got the receipts. Yeah. Anxiety consciousness for real. And so I noticed, oh, it was a zero today. Hmm. And it was a zero the next day. I don't have, I don't have zeros, Richard. And in the next day and the next day. And finally after two weeks, I was like, I have two weeks of zeros. At six weeks, I was like, okay, I think something happened. Mm -hmm. I think I'm free. Daughter, go in peace. Mm -hmm. Be freed from your suffering. And I was. October 10th, 2007. Wow. So you've just, there's just miracle after miracle after miracle. But it seems like in the moment they feel like miracles? No, no, no. When you're eating miraculous bread and fish, doesn't it taste like bread and fish? Yeah, it's just, well, I guess they had some more bread up there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I guess I didn't need to pray for more bread and fish. I guess they had enough. Because they had enough. The kid, man, that kid had a big bag. (laughs) So I want to jump. Man, this stuff's beautiful. I want to jump to seminary and then kind of um, I don't know how I should frame it. The wildness of the last four years or something. I don't know. Um you you're in seminary 
And I'm going to, I'm going to guess, and we've talked about this okay. before, so it's not a guess. You loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I did. I had a good time in seminary. It was, it was good for me. I, it was good. But also in seminary, you run into friends that you're going to have forever. Uh, it's true. Uh, one, Jonathan, Seventh-day Sabbath, Leonardo, the Cornejos. Uh, I knew, I knew the Cornejos from Southern. Yeah, I remember yeah, pre, Jayla. Pre-seminary undergrad. I think in her podcast, she mentions... Uh, I got a shout out. Shout out. Uh, you've been shouted out in quite a few of these episodes. <laughs> uh, and so uh, you're in seminary um, and uh, your, your nerdiness and Jonathan, his nerdiness um, over uh, the language, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you guys become friends. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there comes a point where uh, he's out doing his thing and uh, you're probably, well, you tell me you're probably like, Oh, good for you. You're out there preaching the message. Right. Um, and then it seems like there's a controversy. Can you walk me through what you were feeling and thinking uh, surrounding this? Yeah. Take me, take it, take us there. If you could. What surrounding what? Narrow it down for me. Cause that's a lot of years. I met Jonathan Sabdia Sep Leonardo in two thousand eight. Right. So it's been a minute. So you guys are really good friends, but he's preaching this thing that and and from what I understand from mm. our conversations from before, you have a great understanding of the gospel. You have a great like the book of Romans isn't something that's new to you like it was new to me mm. um you know it well uh and when jonathan preaches freedom from sin i don't think that's a shock to you you're just no, like, I was like that, oh okay yeah, that's that's in there i sure. was like i think if you say it that way people are going to get confused they're gonna they're gonna think it's sinlessness when you had read Romans 6 before, was it a chapter of the bible that had stood out to you like oh he is explaining um, what has happened to sin in his person and then what happens to us because of our death, burial, and resurrection with him through baptism. And this is a main thing. Um, had it, how did it, had it stood out to you from before? Okay, so the very first full-length sermon I preached was also in October. It was October 1999. I was 16 years old. Hmm. And my text was Romans 6, verse 11. Reckon ye yourselves, therefore. As I say, consider you're going on. Yeah, I got, I got the, <laughs> the old KJV in my bones. Reckon ye yourselves, reckon yourselves, therefore, dead indeed unto sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. So I was like, oh, okay. What had what had gotten me on fire for that was this old book written by Seventh Day Adventist in the 1920s, I think it was, called "The Life of Victory." Hmm. He also wrote a book called. Uh, his Cross and Mine, and another book. His name was Mead McGuire. But it had gotten reprinted somewhere along the way, and I'd gotten it in the literally a paper bag of discarded books from an elderly person. And I read it, and I was like, this is so good. And he's like, you know, if if you're a slave, but you've been liberated, and you, no one tells you you've been liberated, you're going to still act like a slave. Hmm. But the Bible tells us we've been liberated in Jesus Christ. So the whole crux to a life of experiencing victory is to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So I was like, yeah. So I preached this message. That's, you preached at 16. That's awesome. 
Yeah. You felt like you had a, now looking back, you felt like you had a pretty, your understanding of that was, yeah, this is what we should consider. Yeah. My understanding was like, it's different than what my understanding is today. Mm -hmm. I will say that. But my understanding was like, well, Jesus defeated sin and you've been set free. So don't go around slinking along in a slave mentality. Like you're free. So consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ and whoop. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of life happen in the meantime that panic started coming in about that time and life and different things. So I definitely felt like I'd lost touch with that. And was I applying it to my life in the way that I want to apply that now? No, I was just like, Oh yeah, that's what it says. Mm -hmm. It did not radically reorient my world at that time. So when Jonathan brought up this to me and he was really excited about it. And I remember being like, yeah, man. So glad you're glad about it. Love mm-hmm. that for you. <laughs> it, and, it's true. Yeah. It's and right the there. thing, and maybe you knew something about Jonathan, but if you've heard his episode in season one, and you really understand, oh, this dude was in some stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't. It, and that's the thing is like, sometimes people are like y'all, y'all are pretty crazy about this, but for the most part the people that are forgiven much love much. Mm-hmm. And when there's stuff in your life that you're really trying to get out of, or you stop trying because you don't think there is a way out of, right. and then scripture reveals that not only is there a way out of it, but there, it has already happened in Christ right. and it's your job to believe and walk it out. So your battle with this and your battle with that is, is different. And yes. but Jonathan is coming from this place like, oh, all this stuff that I've been in chains yes. to is like, I'm liberated. And you're like, yeah, right. Of course, this whole time. Yeah. And that's a really good, that's a really good point because to like, what had my life happened so far? Let's see. God rescued me like a brand from the burning, like brought me into faith, revolutionized my life that way, gave me a love for Jesus, for the scriptures, for the church. He used miracle after miracle to love me into faith, to send me to college to study for the ministry. He gave me a wonderful husband who just deepened and enriched my life in so many ways. He had been emotionally and, and psychologically maturing me and healing me. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Um, I've been in ministry, like the, the message that was going to change my life was actually a when I, when I heard you are free from sin, I was like, uh-huh. Because my identity was not, I'm a slave to sin. Hmm. Now, if you'd come and ask me the famous question, Kessie Rain, what is your relationship to sin? I don't know what I would have said. It probably would have been like, well, it's complicated because, you know, sin in the world and like, hmm. is sin a condition or is it an action? And I would have gotten all theological and then you would have been bored and left and gone to get some <laughs> crackers or something. But, uh, so I don't know how I would have responded at that time, but it was definitely meeting a soul need that he had, but I was a little bit confused. Cause I was like, didn't we know this? Did we not know this? We didn't know this. We didn't know this. No. We didn't know this. And it wasn't like I was out there telling him like, Jonathan, you know what the key is? You know, what's going to change your life. I read it right here in Romans six for as many of you has been baptized, yeah. have been buried with Christ. I'm like what? Like you're dead to sin. What? Like I, I wasn't out. I wasn't telling him that. I could have. I wish I would have. I wish I'd... Well, that's what people say. They say, well, we've always known this. 
And I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me, bro? <laughs> I was struggling. <laughs> I was struggling. Yeah. So I didn't have I didn't have the the knowledge or the lived experience to be able to do what Jonathan has done, which is to that that message revolutionized his life, and he can share that with other people. I wasn't doing that. I didn't. I mean, I wasn't like applying it to like change my life and other people's lives. So I guess I'm saying that to say even though at the time that he was having these conversations with me, I wasn't like, wow, you're just blown up my world. Right. I also don't want to give the impression that like, and it's kind of no big deal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, if we do take it really seriously and we do let the word speak fully authoritatively on the subject, some radical things will take place. Um, but the way this intersects with my life, like, like, where Jonathan ministered truth to me wasn't about your dead indeed unto sin, alive to God. Right. Um, where God's word spoke to me and and did a new work in me from an old new message hmm. wasn't on the point of you used to think you were a slave to sin, but now you know you're free. It was on this point. You used to think you were living on your own resources, but now you know you're living under my care. Hmm. And I did not even know that I thought I was living on my own resources. That's the secret. You don't know. You don't. You don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Till till you realize there's something even better. Yeah. Right. And so I can look back on my life and I can look through all these experiences that I've had, even super positive, good ones, grace filled ones. You know, I had my moment of like realizing I am justified. There is no condemnation for me. And I was on that cloud 11, you know, like I was hyped. I was joyful, a song in my heart and a bounce in my step. And I was all about it. I had that experience where I was set free from getting my status right with God through my behavior. Awesome. But I can look back through all this life and see how I was essentially living it on my own, like, okay, let's see, I'm going to figure out what, you know, what's a good life? What, what does God need for me? What does the world need for me? What do other people need for me? You know, what, what's my duty and responsibility to myself, the world, others, the land, the Lord. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to use my brain cells. I'm going to, you know, use the sense God gave me and the strength God gave me, and we're going to make this happen. And, um, you know, if I feel lonely, well, I can just apply truth to that and I can be like, oh, well, but the Lord will never leave me or forsake me. So by loneliness, if I feel grieved or I feel sad or whatever, again, not having felt most of those feelings for almost the entirety of my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have space for that because it was like, oh no, I don't, I can't feel those things. That's not right. So the real revelation for me twofold, the things that have most changed my life, if we're talking about like if we're talking about this message, the message that shows up on each of these podcasts, <laughs> Kissy Rain, how did that touch your life? I'm going to tell you two things. The first was a conversation I had with my, my good friend, Jonathan, and I was going through a super rough, honestly, a traumatizing time in my life. And I was physically and emotionally not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, informally Richard, but really tough, like some dissociation and experiences of unreality and 
tremors and all sorts of things. And, um, and Jonathan it's like, I, he gave me, basically gave me like a loving assignment. In the course of that assignment, the truth that was pressed in on my soul very deeply as I was like literally racked with sobs, like uncontrollable sobbing on and on and on and on crying and crying and crying this release of trauma and tension and hanging on. I finally asked God, like, where, like, why did you let this happen to me? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why did you let this happen? Why did you leave me on my own with all of this, all of this responsibility, all this pain, all these people I was having to take care of all this, you know, why, why did you leave me with this? Why, why didn't you care for me? Hmm. And oh, how the spirit ministered in this moment and brought to mind instance after instance after instance where I had experienced the direct and personal care of God's spirit in my life and in my person and the deep message that God communicated to me beyond words with words, but beyond words, Hmm. I have always cared for you. And this is not an intellectual caring. Like I've always liked, you know what? I've always liked you. I always thought you're cute. You know what? I enjoy your company. No. Cared meaning I have actively taken care of you. Hmm. I have always cared for you. And this was just overwhelming. And I just kind of broke down and sobbed. And that was really a turning point in my healing And that healing journey was still going a few months later when I found myself in Hawaii visiting a friend, not Jonathan Leonardo friend, different friend. And I'm on the beach with Jonathan. We're walking and talking. He's telling me about, you know, what God's been up to in his life and it's beautiful. And we're sitting in silence at this place called Waimea Bay, looking out at the water. And I just feel like I've been living my life on the other side of like a frosted pane of glass. That's the way my trauma response felt. I just felt like there's me, there's this frosted pane of glass and there's life on the other side. And I can't think, which is hard for me, right? Cause like the whole life lived up in the head. Oh, she's so smart, intellectual person. I can't think, I just, I can't grasp. And I wrestled with, with this message. Do I really think I'm dead? to sin? Like, is there some way where I, am I free? Am I not free? Mm -hmm. And just going round about this with God and trying to lay my heart open. God, am I proud? Am I afraid to admit something? Is that why this isn't changing my life? How come my life isn't being changed like all these other people and this and this and this. Meanwhile, I'm going through like a hellish experience Mm -hmm. and so on. Again, want to hug that woman. Um, And in that moment too, it was this is the, the second way that it changed there. It was there at Waimea Bay where it was, you don't have to understand it. Hmm. You just believe it. Oh, I don't need to analyze exactly where I am vis-a-vis this message and how it integrates with my prior theology. And I don't need to be able to give a fully formed coherent explanation of both covenants and how Paul's multiple uses of the law relate one to another and but da 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 and exactly where my spiritual experience fits in with all this. Like, no. 
No, you actually don't. My coping mechanism, my safe place was my brain. Mm-hmm. And what trauma had done to me was made my brain untrustworthy. I couldn't think. I remember having a conversation with your friend of mine, Harold, mm-hmm. and being like, Harold, I think I'm just not going to be smart again. And that's okay. You know, I was just like, <laughs> so sad. yeah, I was sad about it, but I was like, I think I need to give up the PhD. I just like, I, I think I can't think anymore. And I just need to accept that and move on. It's okay. No, God will provide. And, um, so like, I, I didn't have that one refuge. Like the refuge was taken away from me. I didn't have it. My brain was untrusted. I literally was like, I can't tell if this honeydew melon is real. Am I real? Is this real? Are we in real life? That's a weird experience. And the message of the spirit to me was like, you don't have to understand. You don't have to explain. You don't need clarity on this. Just rest. Believe. As, uh, as we're kind of circling back to the, what we were talking about at the beginning, that the body leads or uh, the mind leads, if the body is the first layer and the, the, the soul spirit or the soul, like your intelligence, your personality is the second layer in, and then the depths of who you are is your spirit. You've been blessed with high, high level intelligence. And sometimes it's easy to lead with that high, high level intelligence, but the spirit is ministering to our spirit. Mm hmm that we are sons of God Mm -hmm. and the spirit will then minister to our personality and to our intelligence Mm -hmm. because the way the spirit ministers, he doesn't minister to our intelligence. He ministers to our spirit and then our spirit then decides how we're going to live our life. And kind of the way we're talking about how, um, if we don't know that, and we're just leading with our intelligence or I wouldn't be leading with my intelligence. I would be leading with my charisma or leading with my mm. personality. And that's, what's going to spread the gospel rather than ministering from the depths of who I am, who, ha- which has been ministered to by the Holy spirit. And then I move, my personality moves based on that spirit. Mm. My charisma moves based on that spirit. Mm. And then my body and it all is from the inside out. I, hear the blessing and the curse of your high, high level intelligence. And now you're saying, Oh, I don't need to understand it in a high, high intelligent way. The spirit is ministering to me that I have always been taken care of. I am loved. I am a daughter and I can move from the depths of who I am rather than from this thing that I've always operated. from. Yes. I think of it this way. Often when I'm, when I'm leading people, um, in, in discipleship or we're standing in the baptistry together, I often frame it in terms of what's happening here. One of the things that's happening is you're no longer on your own resources. You, you've got weakness. It's now united to his strength. You've got confusion. It's now united to his clarity, all this, right? You're no longer on your own resources. And I think what we often do is we have certain strengths, certain skills, whatever, we rely on those things to get us through life. So maybe it's charisma or maybe it's being sweet and just so, so thoughtful and just, oh, I'm just the most loving, thoughtful person. This is how I get secured. This is how I get my needs met, mm-hmm. right? How are we getting our needs met? I was getting my needs met through my intelligence, like 
by, first of all, ruthlessly eliminating the concept of need Mm. (laughs) and then uh, making sure I could think my way through this and through that. And I was going to thread every needle with strategy and and smarts and know-how and, okay, I got it up here. So whatever, whatever it is, I believe that at its core, the message, the gospel is, okay, let the gig is up. We all know that is not enough. Hmm. That charisma, deep down inside, you're a sad clown. <laughs> <laughs> You've read me. Yeah. And like, okay, smarty pants, like sometimes your own thoughts haunt you hmm. and your lack of clarity can paralyze you. Right. Like it doesn't matter what the thing, your sweetness leaves you, leaves you resenting other people for not being as sweet as you. And like, you need to be needed. How's that feel? Does it suck? Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Whatever that thing is that we're leading with the way we're trying to get our needs met went and with me, it was intellectually. The gig is up. Mm. That does not actually meet our needs. God meets our needs. God cares about us and our skills do not care about us. Mercy. And our skills are at the mercy of, of life. You know, you can have a traumatic brain injury. You can, you can go through a, an amputation. You can put your whole identity and your, your needs are getting met through your, your husband or your kids. And, and there's a divorce or there's a death or whatever. Those things can be taken from you. The treasure of the gospel, our inheritance cannot be taken from us. It is sealed. It is kept in heaven for you is what the scriptures tell us, meaning it can't be touched. It doesn't matter who the emperor is. It doesn't matter what your health situation is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank account. God takes care of you. He's got you. And that is the only thing we can rely on. And when we rely on that, we can finally have peace because I don't have to rely on myself to be smart enough or someone to be nice enough or to be persuasive enough or to be cool enough or to be any kind of enough hmm. because he has enough and he gives it freely to me. As I'm hearing your story, there's two kind of images that I have kind of pop up. And one of them is is the race, but it doesn't look like a race at this point. Uh I don't know if you've ever been to Baltimore and maybe Chicago has I've been to Baltimore. row houses, right? Yeah, yeah. Chicago does. Yeah. And as you're walking down the street and there's row houses on both sides, sweet Cassie rain Bennett on the top floor of all of these row houses, the windows are open and there are lies from the enemy just yelling down hmm. as you're walking, as you're walking. But not only that, there's circumstances that are hard. Mm-hmm. There's circumstances that are real hard. You, the, the walk is over, I guess. You have the victory, but you're still walking. And there's still lies and there are still circumstances. And so I have that picture in my mind. And then I also have this picture where Paul's just like, why do I have to go through this? Mm. I've asked you three times. Mm-hmm. I've been shipwrecked. I've been 40 lashes minus one. I don't know if he mentions the snake bite in that section. Let down through a wall. Does he mention that one? I don't know. But but he ends up saying, I asked him three times. Yeah. And he, what did he say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And in this moment where I don't know if you're, if you were on the beach or if you're where you're like, God, why did I have to go through all of these things? Mm Mm-hmm. And he's like, girl, 
I've given, you have it. I've given it to you. I love you. And just to see, that's the picture I get in my mind. Does that resonate with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, earlier in that chapter, Paul says, in order to keep me from being conceited. Hmm. Uh, so that God could give him this message. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will gladly boast in my weakness. Right? It becomes the location of God's strength. And then he says this thing that nobody really understands. Well, nobody, they flip it around. <laughs> he says, because in my weakness, I am strong. People have thought, in my weakness, you are strong. Uh-huh. But what he actually says is, in my weakness, I am strong. Mm-hmm. And I just see you and you're freaking strong. (laughs) (laughs) When, when you have, I think when you have the freedom to, to rely on God's resources and care, that's what I think Paul was talking about too. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to talk about is like every one of these circumstances, like I don't have money to go to college. I don't have the resources. God's like, I got you. Mm-hmm. like panic disorder. I don't have the resources. I can't overcome this. How God has ministered grace in and through this on and on. We, so many stories of life. I don't have to live on my own resources. Like I don't need to be conceited where it's all about me. I can boast in my weaknesses because his strength is made perfect. I am now a location, a site of his strength. So in my weakness, I am strong. I have all his resources. I have what I need. Where should we go back to? Who do I want you to talk to? <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which one of these? Of, uh, <laughs> no, your, your life. Um, I think, I don't know if it's probably the same message along the way where you get to talk to this, this sweet, sweet young lady and just say, Yeah. As you've seen all that has taken place, maybe we'll just talk about now. As you've seen Mm -hmm. all that has taken place. And it's, it's, it, it looks like this, like a a line moving up, but it's probably felt like this. Um, And as you look back on this, that famous lady, that famous author said that we would not have changed anything. Amen. Um, and now you're in this spot where you are leading this congregation. What is the truth about you? And because of the truth about who you are, um, what does that mean moving forward? The truth about me is that I am cared for. I'm taken care of. I I got to learn fairly early on in life that I was loved. And I got to learn much more recently in a really deep, heartfelt way that I'm always taken care of. And that would be the message I would want to give that girl growing up the whole time. The young one who got kicked out of kindergarten for saying bad words. Hey, hey, little one, I got a little message for you. 
You know, the one who's afraid to trust in Jesus because she's going to lose all this stuff from her life. Oh, no, he's got you. You know, the one enveloped in panic disorder, the one wondering if she's ever going to get to go to college, the one wondering this, the one wondering that. Yeah, you don't, you're, you're taken care of. So where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What, what is the, uh, what does Jesus say in Mark to, what is it, to, to Jairus? Don't be afraid, just believe. Got me singing like glory. Yeah, it got me telling my story. Know that your love is pouring on me. And love is pouring on me. River flowing in and never ends. More than life, more than me, more than just pretend. You can feel freedom from within. Free to fly, be the child that you always been. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. We would love it if you could share this so that people could hear uh, more of these stories. And a way you can do that is to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a high rating. If, if you give us less than a five star, I'm inclined to believe that you're not really rocking with us. So give us a five star rating and, and throw a comment in there. If you're going to talk about us on social media, go ahead and use the hashtag death to life and let's get that hashtag going. This podcast is a production of Love Reality. And if you want more information about Love Reality, go ahead and check us out at lovereality.org. This show's produced by Tyler Morrison and Katie Prusha. The sound and editing is done by Addison Collingsworth and Eddie Cornejo. And then the Johnny on the spot is Annabelle Harper. And the artwork is done by Felix Gassman. Thank you so much for listening. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Mm-hmm.